0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host today, Laura Goldberg. You might know me from my website, vittlesvamp.com, but I'm here today on the Food Channel at New Books Network, and I am so happy to have with me Grace Lin. She has a new book out. It's called Chinese Menu, the history, myths, and legends behind your favorite foods. Welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you here, Grace.
1: Thanks, Laura, I'm so happy to be here. Well,
0: I I need to ask you first and foremost, in the beginning of your book, you you say that you don't fabricate any of the stories because in many ways, what you've done is taken the American Chinese menu that we know and love and told stories about all of the dishes that we see there. Um, But you do say that even though you didn't fabricate these stories, you did embellish some of them. So I'm just curious, why myths and legends and not just straight up history?
1: (laughs) Well, there's many different reasons, but one of the reasons is because when I started researching this uh, this book and all the different things, such, such as like um, uh, uh, kung pao chicken, right? Uh, there are so many different stories about the legend of kung pao chicken that I wasn't really quite sure which ones were correct, you know. And so, uh, and honestly, they were so old and so word of mouth and so. Um, so, so much just legends that uh, that sem- seem like the right way to tell the stories and honestly um, I'm a storyteller myself I'm most people know me as a children's book author and illustrator and it's really folk tales and stories and fairy tales that really um, get me excited so it's a mixture of those two things probably more the latter than the former but the former is a good a good excuse. <laughs>
0: You know, whatever excuse you have, it's a fun read. And I'm going to say this is going to be a little weird, but I used to work on a soap opera, and one of the stories you talk about is Emperor Zhu and his companion Daji.
1: And ah. oh my gosh, <laughs> they sound like the ultimate
0: uh, soap opera villains.
1: <laughs> yes, there are many, many stories about the this couple. Uh, in fact, Daji is. So renownedly known, even to this day, that people believe that she was she's not human. (laughs) She like she was such a horrible, horrible person. They they can't believe that she's human. That they still tell stories about her being this evil fox spirit that had taken over a human body.
0: Okay, well, what does the fox say? I'm I'm not going to sing. Nobody wants to. But um, I'm going to take a step back in terms of your own background
1: because I understood. Am I correct? You grew up in Taiwan. Um, no, my parents grew up in Taiwan. Ah, um, I okay. grew up here in upstate I grew up in upstate New York. So okay. um so I'm very very much um an uh, Asian American.
0: Okay. So but you
1: you are really steeped in
0: Chinese food through an American lens in this book which I found really interesting. Like just one dish alone to me sort of, you know, summarizes it, crab ragoon. I mean, it's a complete American invention. <laughs> You mentioned other cultures that have become embedded in American cuisine, but I I found it interesting that there was a, a wrestling at the end of the book, whether it was American
1: Chinese food or Chinese American food. And I was hoping you can get into that a bit. Sure. So, you know, all my life I've called it Chinese American food, but it was writing this book that my copy editor Uh, corrected me and said it's actually American Chinese food. Now, uh, before I explain the difference between the two, I guess it's really important for me to explain like the food that we eat at the Chinese restaurants here in the United States is very different than the food that you would eat in China or Taiwan or Hong Kong even. Um, But uh, so for a long time, uh, this uh, American Chinese food or Chinese American food, um, we've kind of looked down on it. Um, In fact, uh, I'm going to backpedal here a little bit and tell you a little bit about the inspiration of this book. Um, The big inspiration for this book actually came for when I finished doing a picture book, a book for uh, kindergartners, first graders, called Fortune Cookie Fortunes. And in that book, um, I did research on the fortune cookie, and I discovered uh, that the fortune cookie is a completely American invention. So if you go to China, nobody knows what a fortune cookie is, right? And so when I told this to my friends at the time, um, this book was, I I made it in like 2003, 2004. Um, All of my friends would respond, Oh, so the fortune cookie is not even really Chinese. And they always kind of said this in a tone of disgust uh, and disdain. And um, that made me feel really bad for the fortune cookie, because as I said, I'm Asian American. And I was like, wow, the fortune cookie is actually the very first, may, might be the very first Asian American food. And that's not something we should look down at because it's not completely Asian. um, So... Uh, that's actually what inspired me to do this book, Chinese Menu, because uh, the same thing could be said about all the food that we eat here, uh, the Chinese food that we eat here in the United States. It's not exactly the same um, that's in that you eat in China or Taiwan. It's not really Chinese but um, that doesn't mean that it's bad. I mean, I think that's where where I'm trying to change kind of change that snobbery a little bit. It just means that it's different. And uh, this book, I'm trying to give a little bit more respect to this Asian American cuisine uh, with the hope that you know, it, it trickles down and uh, it gives more respect to Asian-Americans as well. Um, so back to your question. Sorry, that was uh, a tangent there. <laughs> but it, it was so- more
0: than a tangent. It was a terrific story. And, and and I'm I'm really glad you told it, but please continue.
1: <laughs> so, um, so in the book, uh, I label the food, the Chinese food we eat here in the United States as American Chinese. Uh, before I wrote this book, I called it Chinese American. But my uh, copy editor said, no, no, it's American Chinese because it's Chinese food that has been influenced by American tastes. And she said, if it was Chinese American food, then it would be American food influenced by Chinese taste. For example, if it was Chinese American food, it would be like a hamburger with uh asian spices you know yeah. <laughs> like uh, so uh so that would be chinese american food uh when we took take french fries and we add um, you know chinese spices and and um, uh, i don't know things that we would ginger or something like that i'm trying to think of things that A are like of stereotypically chinese. Sauce. Yeah. yes <laughs> so or and put it in duck sauce or something like that that would be chinese american food uh but um American Chinese food is dishes that were originally from China that have been altered for American tastes. And that's what we have here in this book and here in the United States.
0: And I I will say, though, there are so many cultures where this has happened. I mean, it's not unusual for, you know, immigrants to come to the United States, bring their food, and then when they're trying to share it with others, to have to adjust it to either what the ingredients are here, uh, wherever it is that that they have their kitchen, or just different tastes. I mean, when you look at Italian-American cuisine, which I guess now I should call American-Italian cuisine, (laughs) it is different than what you find in Italy, for example. There are Mm -hmm. plenty of dishes that you might find in what Americans would consider a French restaurant that you would just never see in France so yeah. it's 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 not too dissimilar from from other cultures but you're right there is a sort of a snobbery about American Chinese food and thinking it isn't real and it isn't good especially among foodies, which mm-hmm. is a shame because it's a to me, anybody who calls themselves a foodie should be embracing great food, no matter the form. If, as long as there's respect in the food and, and careful attention to how it's prepared and, and frankly, love put in the dish. I know that sounds maybe a bit much, but here I am being a bit much. And, (laughs) you know, I grew up on, on American Chinese food. I remember, you know, having my, my parents picking up fried rice and beef and broccoli for dinner and that was you know a huge treat not to mention the the glory that was the egg roll so yeah um, and
1: it was delicious right we enjoyed it (laughs) absolutely
0: absolutely i mean you know i i that said i would like to get to some of, of your stories because i those were things I had never been introduced to before. Some of the, the myths and the legends uh, regarding some of these dishes, because a lot of them actually do have roots in China. Yes, it's definitely. That they've been altered in some way for American tastes or American kitchens or American what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you about... Tea, because I've actually been to China and I was gobsmacked when I went to some of the tea malls and how important Mm -hmm. tea is part of the culture. But there was one story you told that was about white hair silver needle tea, where um, this woman and, well, frankly, this entire family is being told at different times, do not turn around for any reason until you have the plant. When, mm-hmm. and, and that alone really echoed something from the Bible for me, where Lot's wife, you know, this disobedient woman is turned into a pillar of salt after seeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And and I couldn't help but make that connection. I, I do wonder whether or not there there are any connections between the Bible and and some of these myths, or it's just a question of these are the kinds of stories that are told time and time again
1: oh that is a good question um unfortunately i'm not as familiar with the bible as probably i should be <laughs> but i'm not um, either i'm I'm, <laughs> I'm a hebrew
0: school dropout i'm going to to admit that to the world <laughs> but uh, it it just it uh, you know it made me think about what are the themes you know Grimm's fairy tales there are certain themes that we as humans revisit over and over again in myth um yeah. in star wars <laughs> yes <laughs> but, you know, I was just curious. What are some of your favorite stories, and what are some of the the trends that you see popping up over and over again in terms of themes and messages?
1: Sure. I mean, I think you know, as a writer, um, we we often talk amongst ourselves about how there's really only two plots in the world. You know, a hero goes on a journey, and stranger comes to town, right? And so, uh, but then if you go even further, and you you know, there's the the hero's journey that's been kind of thought to death. Um, and and, uh, and analyzed to death too. It's it's often this uh, this this idea of someone having to leave leave the comfort of their home <laughs> to to uh, for some better good and to come back and bring back the uh, bring back the elixir, right? And that's really completely in that um, story. It's so perfectly like the hero's journey in White Hair Silver Needle Tea, uh, like these. Uh, this woman has to leave the comfort of her home to to save the save all the people of the village and she has to conquer the 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 monster at the end to get the monster at the, on the top of the mountain to get the elixir of life and then bring it back to save everyone I mean uh, I think that's a common um, Common trope in in lots and lots and lots of stories all over the world. Uh, maybe because it's some things that people actually really did have to do at one point.
0: Well, also it makes for great Disney films. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I will say I was reading a lot of these, and I immediately saw films. I immediately, you know, these sprung to life. Uh, I mean, what what are some of your favorite stories? If you don't mind telling sure. so them now. my
1: that my favorite stories um, are not as uh, not as much of a hero's journey as, um, as the white Heron, silver needles tea story, uh, but uh, one of my favorite stories is the story of spring rolls, and so uh, we call everybody has had a spring roll or an egg roll, um, and everybody kind of agrees that the egg roll is an offshoot of the spring roll. Uh, We call spring rolls spring rolls because they are they were originally eaten only during the spring festival, the Chinese spring festival. Uh, But the name of the spring roll actually does not have anything to do with the origin story. Uh, The origin story has to do with this Ming Dynasty minister who would get his work done twice as fast as all the other ministers around him. And in fact, he got his work done so quickly that the other ministers became quite jealous, and they felt like he must be cheating, that somehow he must be having somebody else do his work for him. And they were so jealous and so suspicious that they brought those suspicions to the emperor. Now, the emperor noticed that this minister also got his work done quite quickly. So he called this minister to him and said, how do you get your work done so quickly? And the minister then had to reveal his big secret. And his big secret was that he could write with two hands. He said, because I can write with two hands, he said, I can get my work done twice as quickly. Now, of course, no one believed that he could write with two hands. So the emperor said, all right, here's nine boxes of records, um, copy them all in nine days. And if you can really write with two hands, it should be no problem. So this minister brought these records home. But when he opened the boxes, he realized there were so many records in these boxes that he would have to work night and day without stopping, even with using both of his hands. So that's what he did. He started night and day, not stopping to eat, not stopping to to sleep, and just copying and copying these records with his two hands going all the time. Now, this minister had a wife, who was quite worried about him. And when she saw that he wasn't stopping to sleep or eat, she said, Oh, but you have to, you have to at least eat. And he says, No, no, I can't stop. My hands must keep moving or else I won't finish. And she's like, Well, then I'll feed you. And so she tried to feed him things like soup and noodles. But uh, of course, those are too messy. And he's like, No, 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 I cannot eat them because uh, I need my two hands. And so she went into the kitchen and she thought, Okay, I need to make a food that he can eat without using his hands. So she invented a rolled food f- food a rolled food that she could hold and he could bite off as his two hands are writing. And of course that rolled food was the spring roll, the food that we now still eat today.
0: <laughs> I can see why you are a very successful children's book writer. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved you at story time with Mrs. here <laughs> at my library. But, um, there are so many stories in here, though. I mean, one of them that I was really surprised about was the one about wonton soup and the Taoist create you know creation story. i was yeah. who knew that there was that much going on in my bowl of, of wonton soup?
1: Yes, that's a beautiful story. um Did you want me to share that one? Yes, please. Okay, so wonton um, we call wonton soup wonton soup because uh, most of the people who came here, the early immigrants from China, were from Canton, so they spoke Cantonese, and so they can they called wonton soup wonton, and so that's why we call it wonton. Now, um, it wonton is a, a lovely word that if you you can kind of translate into um swallowing clouds, which is really a lovely way to think about your soup because like the wontons are kind of like these clouds that you swallow. But if you look at the etymology of the word, uh, like the actual characters, you'll notice that um, it's um, it's, it's also referencing something called the primordial chaos. And what that's referencing is the Taoist creationist story. Now, the Daoist creationist story begins with the primordial chaos. So to the the before there was a world, before there was a universe, before there's anything, there was just the primordial chaos. It was just this kind of thin, thick, kind of this uh, cloudy soup everywhere. And that's what the soup in your wonton soup represents, the primordial chaos. And they said, but over time in this soup, and a round white thing started to congeal inside of it and that's what your dumpling is your dumpling symbolizes this white congealing uh, in the primordial chaos now the story continues now this white congealing actually in was an egg and inside this egg was a giant who was growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And one day the giant grew so large that he cracked open the egg and he held the top of the egg above him and he pushed the bottom of the eggs below him with his feet. And he kept growing taller and taller and he kept pushing the top of the egg higher and higher and higher. And he kept pushing the, the bottom of the egg lower and lower and lower until, and then he kept doing this for like 30,000 years until finally, After he had pushed the top of the egg and the bottom of the egg so far apart that they could never, ever join again, he fell over and he died. And so the top of the egg became the heavens and the bottom of the egg became the earth, uh, the earth and the world that we know now. And everything living on this world is that is what is what is left over from that giant who pushed these two parts of the egg apart. So his breath Uh, became the wind and the clouds Um, his sweat became the rain Uh, one of his eyes became the sun the other eye became the moon Um, his body turned into mountains and his blood became the oceans and the river Uh, and his hair became the trees and the thing that really gives me the heebie-jeebies is that they say that the fleas and the lice that lived in his hair became the animals of the earth Oh gosh! (laughs) so but all of this all of this is in your wonton soup. So when you eat wonton soup, you, the soup is the primordial chaos. Your dumpling is that egg that the giant was in. And when you break that uh, wonton, that dumpling open, you are just like that giant creating the heaven and the earth.
0: See, when I when I started reading that story, vermin aside, I've got to say, it just made me think this is exactly how you're going to get some small child to eat wonton soup that wouldn't before. If they're they're thinking I'm a giant, yes. <laughs> something so delightful about it, and and mm-hmm. I'm gonna have a hard time eating wonton soup without like puffing out my chest and, and thinking <laughs> to myself that I'm I'm a giant. You know, creating the world. It's it's quite quite a lot for a little bowl of soup. Yes, <laughs> but it's wonderful too. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. And I mean, you know, I also want to talk to you a bit about how you set up the book. Because the way you set it up was the way that we look at a a menu. But you also explain, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the ways that we categorize Chinese food or in this case, American Chinese food, it isn't how they would eat in China. For example, appetizers. You're saying that, you know, yeah, we put some stuff together that are appetizers on this menu, but for example, dumplings are really only a dish for holidays. Mm-hmm. So if so you could talk a little bit about that and how you sure. set up this book and, and, and why it works despite the the challenges with what you would see on a table in China.
1: Yeah. So traditional Chinese dining is really, really different um, than how we eat, how we expected to eat here in the United States you know like you said we expected an appetizer a side dish a main dish you know dessert Uh, that's not really how they ate traditionally in China in China it was like they they brought out the rice and you had a couple of side dishes like what's really interesting to a lot of people is like you know what we consider the side dish you know the noodles the rice um, that was considered the main dish in traditional Chinese cuisine right and all the things that we considered main dishes like the beef and broccoli like the you know the mapo tofu like those were in very those were always in very small amounts and those were considered the side dishes that you ate with the rice we've completely reversed that so where it's like the beef and broccoli is the main thing when you and you put a little rice with it Um, so yeah there's it's all of these things that um, immigrant Chinese uh, restaurateurs had to kind of adapt to and that's why it's American Chinese food they they realized that Westerners wanted wanted to eat in a certain way and so they adapted their cuisine to fit it so like you said dumplings are usually for uh, usually for the lunar New year but they said okay we'll have that as an appetizer same with the spring roll like I said usually we ate those at the spring festival but they said okay we'll use that as an appetizer uh, so uh, or a side dish and all of these things. Um, even even the the idea of uh, soup and tea, right? Um, so tea was very very and continues to be very very important in Chinese cuisine. But originally they did not have beverages. Uh, with traditional Chinese dinners. They would always have soup. Like soup was your liquid that you would you would eat with. A there, tea, was a line, there was
0: a line in your book sir, that was you can eat without meat, but you cannot eat without soup.
1: Yes. Soup is so important. That. And that's why soup was uh, soup was the beverage and tea you actually had separately, you know? <laughs> so and same with the dessert, you know? So um so it was a lot of adaptation that um Uh, Chinese immigrants had to do and that's why in the book I often I I say you know this this food that sometimes we disdain we should not disdain because it really is actually the flavor of America you know like it's the flavor of triumph it's the flavor of adaptation it's a flavor of these immigrants uh, figuring out how to survive and thrive here in the United States which is so American and so uh, I feel like all of this is really like all of Chinese Amer- or American Chinese food is the flavor of American America.
0: Well, you tell a story in the book that's not a story at all; it's history about chop suey mm. and how that came to be, and 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 there's a lot of sadness in there, and then a lot of triumph as well. Uh,
1: would you mind talking about that? Um, sure. And so explain that, um, chop so suey is hard. one of those one of those dishes that has had a huge rise and fall here in the United States. And it's also one of those dishes that a lot of people like to uh, poo-poo. It's, it's not really Chinese food. Um, and it, you know, it's it's really a hard thing. There's, it's very likely that there was a, a, a dish that chop suey came from that originally had animal entrails in it. And of course, here in, in the in the United States, we don't like to eat entrails, so it's, it's likely that, you know, uh, a, a Chinese um, immigrant uh, took the entrails out and said, here's chop suey um, or sapsui. Um, but the myth or the legend of chop suey, uh, it also sounds so, um, so realistic. It seems like it could be true. Uh, so I'm not sure which way it is, but um, the the legend is, like I said, rings so true. So uh, it begins. The legend of Chopsui begins with, of course, Chinese immigrants who came here to the United States during the Gold Rush. Um, of course, they they came just like so many other immigrants, looking looking for gold, you know, with the 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 dream of gold mountain. But once they got to California and got to Gold Mountain, uh, there was no more gold. Uh, there was no more gold for them, and uh, most many most of the Chinese immigrants were so poor they didn't even have enough money to go back to China. So they had to scrape out a li- living um, in, in the gold fields where there was no gold. And so what many of them did was open restaurants. Well, um, this actually ties into I'm um, taking a small tangent. Sorry. This ties into a little bit of why perhaps we don't respect Chinese food uh, as much as we should, because even though Chinese food is quite difficult to make, it's got just it's just as complicated as French food. But we consider it cheap food. We consider Chinese food cheap food, uh, probably all because uh, all the way back then and during the gold rush, these Chinese immigrants had to uh, price their food very, very inexpensively, very, very cheaply in order to get People to try it and to eat it, uh, so that's what they did. They priced their food very, very cheaply uh, to get people to to buy it and eat it, and they were very successful. And that's how they were able to survive. Now the story of chop suey continues, where um, you know because they were Chinese immigrants, uh, they were often targets for violence and racism. Uh, So a lot of Chinese immigrants had to be very careful. And one night uh, after a Chinese restaurateur had closed up his restaurant, a group of drunk European miners came in demanding food. They really, they were hungry, they were drunk, they were rough. and The Chinese restaurateur knew better than to say no to a group of drunk, angry miners. And so he said, yes, yes, come in, I'll feed you. Uh, but then, when he went to his kitchen, he realized that he had no food. That he all that the food delivery was coming the next day, and he had nothing to serve these drunk miners. And these miners were getting angrier and angrier. And the Chinese chef was desperate, and so he looked at his scrap. His scrap barrel, mainly his garbage barrel, and he dumped it into a pan, stir fried it, covered with it with a sauce, and served that to the drunk miners. And the drunk miners loved it. And they asked him what it was called. And the the chef, knowing that they did not know any of his uh, Chinese dialect, said, "Oh, it's chop suey," which um <laughs> which in his Chinese. Um, which in his Chinese dialect, of course, um, <laughs> which of course meant odd scraps, <laughs> but they didn't know that. And so they're like, Oh, sure. Chop. Thought, and I thought it was so, the most elegant dish they'd ever had, yes, dish.
0: had. Yeah. They didn't realize it was just scraped out of the, cr- the, the, the Garden, trash. Yes.
1: <laughs> and so that is the legend of chop suey. Like I said that may that's probably not true, but it sure has a lot of uh truth in it, I think. Well, I you know, reading
0: about that, you also talk about how there was anti-Chinese sentiment that mm. really grew uh in during that period uh, you know, of time and there were in 1882 there was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yes. Which was I believe the first and only government legislation to actually exclude immigrants solely because of race. And and yes. the idea that it passed is just horrifying. Yes. And it made it almost impossible for Chinese to immigrate here, if yes. uh, I'm not incorrect. and 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 you go on to talk about how one of the very few loopholes was that you could be a special merchant. Mm-hmm. And you get a visa and and that special kind of, of visa would allow you to be a restauranter. Yes.
1: So that's why there were so many Chinese restaurants and Chinese laundries, honestly, because those were the few loopholes in, in this uh, Exclusion Act that Chinese could get a visa for, um, having a restaurant or having laundries.
0: And do you, I mean, is there, you know, do you think the people in China who are emigrating here to the United States knew that this was what they were going to have to do in order to earn a living? And then
1: they said, you know, I want the U.S. badly enough? I think think by, uh, I think most of them knew. The ones that opened the restaurants um, knew. I mean, basically there were some, some, big Chinese investors who opened big restaurants and then they would, they would get, um, get immigrants to come. So I think most of them knew, but I think they knew they were coming to the United States to work in a restaurant. They knew they were coming to the United States to work. But I think most of them, I, I mean, who knows all immigrants, nobody knows what you're in for, right? True. <laughs> nobody knows how hard it's going to be. And uh, and nobody hard. knows what you're going to face, like how, how much, how much discrimination or racism you're going to face until you get there.
0: And there's so much of it today. So I, I think yeah. your book, uh, celebrating American Chinese food and and embracing its its history and its myths and its legends, as the name of your book says, uh, I think brings a, a joy to exploring immigration and different communities in the U.S. in a way that I don't think we've been allowed to do as much as, as we should.
1: Yeah, I I really hope it does that. I, what I and what I really hope it does is, um, you know, it celebrates the the uh, you know, for lack of um, better word, the hyphen, right? Like we actually don't use the hyphen anymore, but for a long time it was like Asian hyphen American, Chinese hyphen American. You know, like, um, and I hope that this book really celebrates that the 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 mix of asian and american and shows that it's actually something quite wonderful i i adore that that
0: celebrating the hyphen i've not heard that is that is that something you just made up on the fly now or is that something that i should oh. be familiar with <laughs> um it's
1: I, it's something I've, i think it's something that i've thought of for a long long time but it doesn't really work anymore because it the correct way of of saying Asian American is without the hyphen now, but for a long time uh, it was with the hyphen, and I often thought about that hyphen as being a bridge uh, between the two, as being a connector, not not as a divider. Um, for, like when I was uh, first, like I said, for a long time, I used to look at that hyphen and thought it was like a negative, like it was a minus sign, and uh, it took me a long time to realize, no, it's not a not minus sign; it's a, it's it's a bridge. But like I said, uh, we don't really use the hyphen anymore. So. So it's lost all its symbolism.
0: Well, I, I'm I'm old enough to remember the hyphen, and yeah, so I, I appreciate it. But you, you speak of bridges, and and there's a connection that is often mentioned when we mention Chinese food, um, and that's the bridge between Italy and China in Marco Polo. And I know in the book you talk both about scallion pancakes and noodles. And I'm hoping <laughs> to share a little bit about that, and and take some of the mystery out of that connection and that bridge.
1: <laughs> sure. So there's lots and lots of incorrect and um, stories about Marco Polo bringing uh, food uh, from China to the to uh, Italy. And so like a lot of people say, oh. Marco Polo bought noodles, and that's what—that's how spaghetti was invented. Um, That is not true, uh, though. It is likely that noodles was invented before uh, spaghetti um, or or um, Italian pasta, but uh, historians pretty much think that they were invented separately like without influence or the other because uh, they were invented in Italy way before Marco Polo came over. Uh, same with uh pizza, <laughs> scallion pancake. Uh the story that I put in my book about scallion pancakes is the story, uh, the is the myth, the legend, the one that I was told when I was a kid and I really believed it, but uh, upon doing this book I have found out is not true, <laughs> is how Marco Polo loved scallion pancakes so much that when he returned to Italy, he really, really wanted to eat scallion pancakes again, but he had only eaten them in China and he did not know how it was made. He never made them. And so he told all these cooks and chefs about the scallion pancake and they all attempted to make it for him but he didn't understand how like the scallions were in in the dough and all those things and so uh, eventually uh, one of his chefs, none of his chefs were ever able to make the scallion pancake, but one of his chefs did make the pizza, which I always, like I said, I always believed as a child uh, but it was not a true story. But the one that is possibly true, um, which uh, is ice cream or gelato? Um, this this one actually uh, is possible uh, because the ancient Chinese uh, figured out how to freeze ice in warm weather way before any other civilization that um, we know. Of. They actually had icemen. Uh, people called icemen who who would make ice. Of course, it was quite difficult and it, and it was uh, quite valuable. Um, so they made ice for a long time, but they never made ice cream or ice milk until the Mongol Empire came over, uh, the Mongol, until, the, I'm sorry, until the Mongols uh, took over China. And the Mongols um, drank a lot of milk in their diet. The Han Chinese uh, did not, which is why they never froze milk before. Uh, but Kublai Khan, uh, people probably recognize that name, uh, did drink a lot of milk. And he was very upset when he ruled China that his milk would spoil. And so the Chinese servants adapted their ice making machine to make ice milk. And Kublai Khan was the one who was in power when Marco Polo came to visit China. And it's very likely that Kublai Khan treated Marco Polo to ice milk because that was considered a very, very uh, special treat that Kublai Khan would give his guests. And it's very likely that Marco Polo took this memory of ice milk to Italy and slowly it became gelato and ice cream, which we know today. And
0: now all I want is some gelato with a fortune. <laughs> <cookie>. that <laughs> be That's perfect. That would be perfect. Midday, yes. <laughs> perfect midday treat. Speaking of treats, though, what is your go to order when when oh. you walk into an American Chinese restaurant?
1: When I go to American Chinese restaurant, um, the things that I always order is, I usually always, depends on who I'm with too, but if if I'm just by myself, I always get the dumplings because the dumplings are almost always good. You can never, very few places can mess up dumplings, right? So I always get the fried dumplings. (laughs) I usually get either the mushu pork, or um because that's i i love mushy pork um like the the wrapping the wrapping or i get the kung pao chicken but if i'm with my family we always get the general tso's chicken <laughs> and then um usually after that of course I you know uh and then some kind of noodles usually
0: well I I've got to yeah. say I I'm with you on the on the dumplings but I <laughs> I'm always surprised when I order fried dumplings they're to me they're supposed to be pan fried and every once in a while they're deep fried and that oh, always yes. throws me off yes <laughs> throws me off but I one of my favorite dishes and actually I will fully admit I usually cook for Thanksgiving but I I met up with my mother and I took her out for American Chinese food, and and we had Peking duck, which is one of my favorites. And it's so complicated. I mean, you talk about how it's made in the book. Uh, Yes,
1: (laughs) I'm just not doing it. (laughs) That's a. It's worth it. Like I don't because I eat Chinese food fairly regularly, so you can't really get Peking duck every time. That's like a special occasion thing. But yeah, uh, that's definitely one of that. It might be my favorite. I'm trying to think if it's my favorite.
0: There's so many favorites. I mean, there's. I mean, there are dishes. I go to Chinatown. I live in New York, and I go to Chinatown regularly. And and uh, you know, the food in Chinatown, a lot of it isn't American Chinese. It really is more classic Chinese. Like mm-hmm. I love snow pea leaves. You know. Mm, yes. Oh my God, so good. But there there is something wonderful about you know kung pao chicken, as you said, mm-hmm. or lo mein, or you know these yes. dishes that are really comfort. You know, for me, mm-hmm. having grown up with them mm-hmm. um, and, and it, American Chinese food is definitely something that most Americans, no matter what corner of, of this country they're from, that they recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's lovely that that you're sort of opening people's eyes to to where these dishes come from and, and the stories that uh, have brought them to us. Yes. So okay. um, I'm. I'm going to let you go, but I I just want to say to everyone listening, uh, if you like Chinese food, if you like American Chinese food, if you have someone on your uh, list for the holidays who who enjoys a good egg roll, Chinese Menu, The History, Myths, and Legends Behind Your Favorite Foods by Grace Lin. Thank you so much for being here, Grace. Really appreciate
1: it. Oh, thank you, Laura. It It was really great being here. Thanks so much.